0: It's gonna sound weird if I'm saying it because you always say it um this could be your first
1: time doing the intro
0: oh my uh (laughs) fair I suppose I mean we are kind of share and share alike. Brian does all the work and Leon takes half the credit um (laughs) 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 not not to put too fine a point on it no Um, no but yeah it's the
1: same with like companies because I had the idea and you do all the work and I get the
2: money Well, somebody has to carry the responsibility, and the responsibility always weighs heaviest. So, Leon. um...
0: I'm like Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Not liking the direction this is going already. (laughs) What a comparison. Thanks. (laughs) Um, I wish they'd invite me to do Saturday Night Live. I would be down. Um, But fair enough. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet again to another adventure here with Anglistin Assemble. Uh, today's episode, we're starting a series where we get to know your lecturers and other staff members that work here at Bielefeld University just so that you can get a feel for the kinds of things that interest them and also hopefully and that will depend on our guest i'm sure uh what kind of person they are otherwise that is to say (laughs) what they enjoy doing in their time when they're not spending it at the (laughs) university and we thought who better to start off with than the one the only jessica (laughs) who is uh, one of the, I believe the term we used is homegrown lecturers uh, here in our department, British and American Studies. So, um, Jessica, welcome, and Leon, welcome.
2: Hi, you too. Lovely to see you and hear you. That's uh, a unique kind of thing in these times, I feel, being able to see and hear people at the same time. Um, Hi, everybody. It's lovely that you're having me on. Hi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And always a pleasure and a privilege to have folks like you on. Jessica, um, I mean, we wanted to kind of keep this uh, episode... First of all, not, not too lengthy. We went nearly two hours last
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: went over two pod- hours and then you had edited it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> As first podcast should. Um.
0: <laughs> and uh, so we're going to try and keep our, our, our listeners at least um, in content without overloading them with content. Um, but yeah, I think first of all, uh, like I said, always a pleasure and a privilege. We want to try and get some some feelings for, you know, what, what kind of people work around here, maybe understand or help people understand, especially newer students who've been here for <laughs> about three semesters and have not really, quote unquote, <laughs> met a single person. Um, and so in that effort, uh, we thought, you know, just hanging out with folks, talking about what they what they like to teach, what they like to research, what they like to do otherwise might be a good idea. I and, think it's uh, fantastic. Since you're such a personable person, uh, <laughs> we thought it would be easy to start off with you. And uh, I think I, I, those were Leon's uh, sentiments as well as mine. I think I'm not alone there. No, no. Um, but maybe we could start off with a simple question like that. Just kind of getting to know you, getting to know all about you. going to make me want to dance,
2: a slow Get dance. We'll do some
0: Julie, Julie Andrews action in here. Um, so why don't we start with that first very basic thing. So. Tell us a little bit about your career at Bielefeld University, you know. How did Uh, you start off
2: here? Oh, well, um, I started uh, studying here um, in, I think it was 2008. Um, I actually began my career as a student in Münster um, because I had the terrible idea, um, awful, really, uh, to study biology. um, Which (laughs) turned out, like, biology is great. I love biology. I love bugs. I always wanted to be... Um, uh, entomologist Um, but turns out uh, I'm not great at math Um, and you kind of need that so uh, after a semester there I came back to Bielefeld I'm originally from Bielefeld and I returned and I thought, OK, what is the, the one thing that I always wanted to go back to um, that's that's English? And I thought, OK, I'm going to give this a try. Um, I failed once. Uh, failing twice can't hurt. And uh, so I, I came here and I started um, the, the study program in British and American studies and German studies as my minor subject. And I loved it. Uh, and I still do. Um, So I completed my bachelor's degree here, then I completed my master's degree here in 2014 and I then began my PhD research phase uh, uh, which um, ended in <laughs> 2019 um, and yeah I um, I was allowed or I I taught my very first class here I think it was in 2014 with research and presentation and um, for some reason people thought it was a good idea to let me lose on more classes and um, I've been very very happy ever since because I um, I think Brian, correct me if you think I'm wrong there, but I think we have the second best job in the world. uh the best job is, of course, uh, of course Mythbuster, um quite frankly.
0: I would disagree with Mythbuster, but I totally agree <laughs> that our job is good. Um,
2: um, yeah, so um yeah, I've, I've been very happy here ever since, and um I will try and stay as long as I can.
0: <laughs> nice. Um a okay, follow-up question. Why Mythbusters? Um what, what do you find <laughs> so fascinating about this? I mean taking <laughs> stuff
2: and figuring out whether it's it's correct, whether it actually works or not. I mean when you actually get to do cool shit with explosives. I mean, can I use Expletus here? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um absolutely I'm I d I love that show. Um and it's it's wacky and a bit scientific and a bit not, and it uses math that I can understand, so <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it.
1: <laughs> okay, I think I already <clears throat> see that Jessica is very proficient in like doing podcasts and talking uh, freely in English. Due uh, to your podcast. I just see
2: that I d- you I d- it, yeah. I d- I'm glad that you mentioned this. If you want to hear more of this person talking nonsense nonstop, <laughs> why don't you check out the Unconditional Teaching Podcast on unconditional-teaching.com? Um.
0: <laughs> That's something we can throw into our description <laughs> links yet again. In fact, last last episode, we've already given you guys a shout-out for, for Till's fine work. Yeah. Um, And we're happy to give you yet another uh, shout out for your fine work. It sounds like there's just a lot of fine work to go around. So we'll spread the love.
2: It's because the people in Aboriginal American studies here at Bielefeld University are in fact the best. And I've checked. I've checked. It's true.
0: (laughs) Well, not only that, every single one of them. (laughs) Every single one of us, exactly. If you go to the AKAFAF and and you just get a list of all of the programs that are there, if you're looking through courses, I've I've always said this again and again because I always um, during the info weeks uh, tell people to you know know their program like they should. Um, that is to say, to know what exactly what courses they need to study. And when you go to the AKVV, everything is listed in order of awesomeness because Anglistic, British ah. and American Studies is at the top of the list. Although I think we've been re- since replaced by um, uh, Aesthetische Bildung or something along those lines. Um, so we're ah. now only second in the list.
2: Fair. fair. But,
0: um, but
2: but, you know, I mean, Aesthetische Bildung, so pretty comes first. <laughs> There's nothing to do with smart comes second. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, No, but our study program is pretty cool. And of course, uh, Anglistic starts with A, as does awesome. So, yeah, um, I think there is no coincidence there.
0: That's true. That's true. Free association can be dangerous. In this case, it's just true.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's observation. It's observation.
1: (laughs) 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 When you mentioned the icav I thought you wanted to go in a different direction because I know that there are students that not only go to the ICF to pick the classes that they need to pick, but they also look f- only look for the names of lecturers and pick whatever the lecturer is teaching this semester just because it's that certain lecture. And I know that Brian and Jessica are some of the lecturers that people are intentionally oh. looking <laughs> for.
2: Oh. I used to do that as a student too. Um, I mean, every class that Angela Stock taught back then, <laughs> um, I took all of them. Like all of them. Um, and I, I became one of the, what, what she calls the usual suspects. Um, and I don't know if that annoyed her at one point, um, but I uh, huge shout out to Angela Stock. She's just so amazing. Um, and I I mean, I, I know that of course you pick classes, not just because you, you have to, but also because you think the person who's teaching that class is, is somebody you can work with. Um, and... I'd, I think yeah I mean Julia Andres is another person that people flock to and Brian certainly is Pat um, so I think I think like the anglistic is just packed with awesomeness um, and and with people like this on side of the students too um, it's it's just a, such a pleasure to to teach and to to talk to people coming to my class and doing awesome stuff.
1: Maybe while we are on this topic, um, uh, when you come to cleanse, comes to Classes, is there a class that you think that you have taught is the best or one of the best that you think, yeah, this class, I'm I'm pretty proud of this class.
2: The first representations of death and dying. Um, a few semesters ago, I taught a blog seminar on uh, representations of death and dying and um i mean i've I've taught this class once over, and was, was still like fantastic um I changed around a few things, and the people um participating of course were different, but the first time was that that really impressed me um not because of the good job that I did, but rather because of the um the awesomeness of the people in that class. This was a high intensity class in in the sense that um, it, it's a topic that all of us come into contact with at one point. Um, at, the, <laughs> at least one point. At least one point, exactly. <laughs> uh, but but usually, when it's not us who is dying, but you know, when we lose loved ones or people we look up to, um, and um, then teaching a seminar on this topic. Sort of, I wanted to do that because it's a topic that's very dear to my heart and I'm somebody who um, is, I'm, I'm not good at many things, but I'm good at analyzing representations, like that's my one thing. Um, and I, I really wanted to teach this class, but on the other hand, I was so afraid that it would go wrong. Um, that um, it would leave people um, either disinterested or um, not motivated to talk about this or, at at worst, um, leave them triggered. Um, And I was really, really terrified of that. And the class turned out to be so extraordinarily lovely and intellectually stimulating and, like, It was just a roundabout cool class. It was a blog seminar, five days in a row. And um, I started bringing a bit of chocolate and a bit of coffee the first day. On the second day, somebody else brought donuts. And on the day afterwards, like, I I didn't say anything. It just happened. Um, And um, I I made a point... um, of like shaking things up, like after the coffee break and after the lunch break, we would do something that had nothing to do with de- death and dying for 15 minutes. Like just something that was weird and funny and not at all like heavy stuff. Like we would just play a short game uh, or something like that. Uh, like something with word associations. We would try in pairs to uh, balance Uh, a a pencil on two other pencils or across the room or something like that just something that's silly to to get our heads out of this depressive funk uh, that was this class and all around it was so good um and we, we covered a lot of different media and a lot of different mediums um uh, we started with classical poetry and epic uh, epics we read a part of paradise lost and we ended with with video games and it was just so cool and the class was fan friggin tastic and um there were half of the class were not master students this was a master's class where it was ba students who were interested in that topic and BA students who come to master classes—they rock, like they seriously rock. Um, they they really whipped the MA people into shape. It was so <laughs> good. It was so so good. Um, and yeah, that, that's the class I I look back to the most and think, yeah, this this was fantastic. That this really worked out well.
0: <clears throat> yeah, it sounds like it could have gone in a couple of different directions yes. from the planning phase, um, <laughs> but but maybe I because it sounds like a brave choice um, to to do something like that. My question would be, how do you come up with these ideas and then turn around and take those ideas and and realize them in the real world, you know, practice? So like, you come up with the idea, we're going to be talking about death and dying. And then you go, okay, now I need to find representations of death and dying. Where do I start?
2: Uh, that's that's actually, actually, I do it the other way around. And this is something ah. that I, I think I learned from Angela Stock um, the most. Um, like Angela in her first um, analyzing and interpreting class that I took in my very first semester, um, said this one sentence that I will never forget. Like everything is text. Look, what what I give you here in terms of toolkits you can use not just for literary texts, you can adapt this to anything that represents and means something. And since everything represents and means something, I have now a toolkit that I can apply to everything. And it took me a whole semester to realize like the magnitude (laughs) of that. And then I had in my second semester, I had this amazing power search where I just went like comic villain mad with power over (laughs) over (laughs) this realization like I can do anything with this and then of course you go overboard as a student and you realize the limits of these toolkits and theoretical approaches and you know you write a few bad term papers Um, I did that certainly (laughs) and then you figure out like how these toolkits actually work and um I, I think I'm doing this now in the way that I whenever I watch something or read something or look at a cultural practice or a certain ritual or something like that, I always have this academic filter in the back of my head. Uh, like I'm, I'm watching this as a private person, but I'm always also the academic who has been trained by people like Pat and Angela um, and, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, and, and other lecturers here in this department. And then I... I look at these representations and i go like huh this is this is weird this makes me angry or sad or makes me euphoric or this touches me in some human capacity um and from that i try and figure out what that was what it was that did something to me and then i try and figure out Ways in which I can explain why that this that did something to me, and this is how the death and dying class came into being. I I read um, uh, parts of uh, Paradise Lost where uh, Satan uh, tries to escape hell in order to enter paradise uh, to mess with Adam and Eve, and um, uh, he encounters at the doors of hell um, the guardkeeper, uh, the, the gatekeeper, um, and that is death. And uh, his daughter Sin, and there's a lot of incestuous relationships between the tr- three going on. It's a very interesting scene, um, ve- very, um, <laughs> very John Milton. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I, I thought this is okay. So we have this this personification of death here. Where else do I see personifications of death, and how are they different from this personification? And then I, I looked at some. Um, uh, wood carvings uh, from from the Middle Ages and I uh, knew about movies that dealt with personifications of death Um, uh, Me, Joe Black for instance Um, terrible romance, the old version is much better, (laughs) Death Takes a Holiday it's a fantastic, fantastic movie from the 50s I think Um, never mind, I sound very old when I I say this Um, (laughs) and um, then I said okay, what else do we have beyond like embodiments of death. Um, Okay, death and sex seems to be a topic. Um, And um, sort of what kind of theoretical inputs uh, do we have from scholars on these topics? And this is how I assembled this, this class. And the first death and dying class was actually ordered or structured by medium. Um, so we started with epic, then worked our way through poetry and novels um, um, and, and uh, paintings and photography to video games. And then we saw, okay, how is death represented in each of these different media? And um, I think we, we got a pretty good overview over different like facets of, of this topic. And um, the expertise that the students bring to the t- table, particularly with newer media, um, was quite astounding.
1: I think this nice. is a pretty good transition to one of the topics we had for this session, which is, as an academic, <laughs> what can you still watch or read or listen to, even though you, you have this voice in it that tries to analyze everything? Is there something that you can that, that. maybe even enjoy more because of this voice? Because there are things that you know, understand, that you previously didn't understand?
2: Yeah, um I I have two little anecdotes I think I would like to share here um that, that I found quite illuminating. Um in one of my first analysing and interpreting classes, the class that now is genres author's periods, um I had a um a young student, um young woman who sat there and when I set this shtick that I basically took over from Angela and said, like everything's text, isn't that amazing? We can analyze anything, it's gonna change the way you view the world. Um I'm a little less enthusiastic in class, but not by much. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> she sat there and she got all, like, like she, she had these big eyes and she looked at me. And then she, she said, but I don't want things to change the way I view the world. And I was so... Like, I, I didn't understand. And then I, I, I came back home and I sat down and I thought about this. And then I thought, yeah, okay, that makes sense because that's scary. It's scary to be confronted with the potential, with, with your world being potentially turned on its head and being shaken fundamentally and for me i think because i was already so shaken up from all of the experiences that i would made previously in münster and knowing that usually nothing goes to plan and everything goes to um uh, like my expectation of life is it it doesn't work out like i'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop so when angela provided me with this with this basic tenant of of the humanities i was like yeah okay sure great dope i'm gonna roll with this but i understood in that moment when she said with like almost panic in her face that there are some people for whom this is like a very daunting um thing to to try and then um, a, a second anecdote that, that sort of, I'm, I'm trying to make a point here, but bear with me. Um, <laughs> there was a, another young person in a later um, analyzing class, several semesters later, who, uh, when we discussed like ways in which we can analyze different um, text types, prose, poetry and drama, said that she totally understands the necessity to analyze um, narrative prose and um, and. Uh, drama, but she always, uh, or she she thought that um, poetry should be left alone because it is meant to be enjoyed, not to be analysed. And um, I mean, I, I understand the sentiment behind that, um, because like a lot of people fear, have this, this sort of gut reaction towards analysis and interpretation as something that destroys enjoyment. Uh, but Leon, I think you're quite right when you point out that the moment we realise that we have to kill our darlings sometimes when we sort of approach cultural products that we enjoy with our um, analytical frameworks. Um, It also means that we can kill our darlings. We are able to do so. And I think this is so, as I said, I had this intense power rush and I still get that from time to time when I just realize with how much insight these toolkits can provide me with if I let them or if if I'm willing to use them. And um, I think it makes us much less, not entirely free of, of course, but it makes us less susceptible to um, attempts at manipulation. Um, It makes us, it empowers us, it enables us to see things and reflect upon whether or not we agree with the things that we see or whether we want to change something. It allows us to self-reflect I think this is one of the most underrated aspects of literary and cultural studies, that literary and cultural studies studies things that humans create. And by studying something that humans create, we study ourselves. And if that's not worthwhile doing, then I don't know what is. And me, for me personally, um, I, I love, as a lot of you will know, I love wrestling and I hate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love watching wrestling. It's, it's a guilty pleasure that I've always had. Um, when, whenever I was frustrated in my BA and I came home and it was Monday evening, I would switch on TV, go to Eurosport and watch the vintage collection um, and just watch quote unquote manly men doing manly things manfully. Um, and then I wrote my PhD thesis and my MA thesis about these about topics related to wrestling. And of course, this has entirely deconstructed the whole enjoyment of it for me. Do I still watch it? Yes. Do I still enjoy it? Absolutely. Um, and part of the enjoyment, the intense enjoyment, comes from me being able to see what a what a shit show this is. <laughs> um, so there, there is pleasure in being able to to analyze these things, and it's it's a different kind of enjoyment I'd say and it's not always malicious as it's with me and wrestling Um, but um, I, I, I don't think we need to be afraid of killing off our darlings it's I think it's good that I don't like the books and the movies anymore that I liked when I started studying I think that that speaks to me being able to see that some things are not worthwhile enjoying anymore, if that makes sense.
1: I think it does. For me, it came in like phases, because when I started, I know I had my analyzing classes, someone told me, yeah, after this class, you maybe can't see or read whatever you <coughs> like with the same eyes. And for me, it was the cliche like Harry Potter, mm-hmm. when you realize, okay, the way it is written and the way the characters are structured, it is not, one of the best novels ever. It is very generic or basic in the way it does certain things. And I got very scared because after like a year, I couldn't really enjoy thinking about it anymore. But even this stopped at some point and I got to peace with myself and was able to think, okay, I know that this will never be the best book ever, but I can still enjoy this and I can still like this while having those facts in my head and while knowing that maybe the way these characters have their roles that they have to play is not correct or not even politically correct, but not well-designed or maybe not optimal or not good for, these, uh, for this stereotype, maybe not good for this minority, I I can enjoy this book or this movie even while knowing this.
2: I think that's an important point because, like, even if we later on figure out that literature, let's stick with the example of literature, that literature we used to enjoy, we no longer enjoy because, for the same reasons, because we realize, for instance, that representation of certain groups is awful or um, problematic. Um, the, The literature was still important to us and influenced us. Um, in a way that was important for our development so we can appreciate what a text did for us in the past while still acknowledging that in the present this text no longer does anything for us it has it it has fulfilled its purpose and I think for some texts that is that is definitely definitely true for me Harry Potter like I grew up with Harry Potter as well and. Um, But um, I I made this this, a, A similar experience with it It used to be important And now I look back on it And I realize that it was important For a certain amount of time And now I look back at it And I go like this is no longer important to me I can read this now and it doesn't do anything for me anymore Um, I'm I'm moving on to other things and this has really nothing to do I think with, not necessarily something to do with the quality of the text in terms of like is this canon literature or is this lowbrow literature or whatever (laughs) but it has something to do with like where are we in terms of our academic development and emotional development at any point in time and what is the next level up I like to say um, (laughs) that we can derive from a text at any given time and some texts give us more level ups and some texts give us fewer level ups but um like if we enjoy something we enjoy it for a reason and to analyze and figure out why we enjoy these things um can can give us quite a bit of insight into into ourself um and that's that's why and what I enjoy about literary studies, apart from the like ivory tower academic, uh, like like very very hardcore literary interpretation stuff, it's it's this that it gives me an insight into myself and into other people. I think at least.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and at the same time, I feel like it gives us you know, what you were pointing to earlier, these kinds of critical thinking skills that help us avoid manipulation to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, But I mean, the idea that I'm able to question somebody else's interpretation of a text, the idea that I'm able to question, you know, just the the way the text is presented in and of itself, whether that's because uh, it's parody or because it's doing something on a a different level that's somehow hidden uh, in the initial reading or viewing, depending on what we're talking about um and and that I'm able to do those things on my own I feel like those are the things that I really enjoy about literary and cultural studies myself and at the same time the same way you were saying about wrestling you know you can still enjoy it despite having these insights into what it does with I don't know gender roles and masculinity um I I maintain a certain amount of guilty pleasure in knowing. This is exactly something that I shouldn't be enjoying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there there are certain things I was just i um, thinking about Rick and Morty, um, which is a, a wonderful cartoon series, mm-hmm. and it's horribly, horribly off in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of uh, The Never Ricking Morty, which is like uh, episode six, season four. Check it out, any literary studies person, because it's all about Rick and Morty being on this never-ending train. Uh, and this train represents the narrative of their lives in this particular moment. And it's very circular and the only way to break out of this narration is to do something that they would never do, to just break the mold. And in order to do that, they uh, uh, establish, okay, we have to create a story ourselves. What wouldn't we ever do? Let's do something with the Bechtel test. <laughs> and and the, for those of you who don't know what the Bechtel test, it means you've got women inside of the story that are named, that are speaking, and that are speaking about things that have nothing to do with men. And if you apply this test to a lot of cultural production yep. out there, you'll see just how quickly a lot of them don't pass the test.
2: It's really tragic.
0: <laughs> and uh, you know, the first the first thing that Morty resp- responds in this particular episode is Bechtel test. What's the Bechtel test? <laughs> <laughs> and Rick says, don't, "What do they teach you in those schools?" Um, and goes on to explain it. And then Morty comes up with this horrid, horrid story about his mother and his sister fighting off alien scorpions with power derived from their vaginas because it was the most unmanly thing that he could think of.
1: Um, <coughs> I, <was laughs> I think it's choking
0: Leon. <laughs> So using wow. vagina beams, they're, they're destroying all of these female scorpions that are attacking the earth. I um, can
2: guarantee that this is not how vaginas function. Ah,
0: <laughs> oh, dang it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what? I know, uh, I, I know it's
1: a absolutely. shock. I know it's a shock. Insert here the, the shocked faces of two men. Exactly.
0: Um, as, as a cis uh, male, I have to say, I, I was I was at least partially aware of that. Although, you know, I held out hope for, for super women um, in that sense. But I, I'm at the holding same time, out like to, I said. I
2: uh, hope too, but yeah. No, hey, go ahead.
0: You know, when the alien scorpions attack, you never know what you're capable of. Uh, absolutely. Um, but I guess the, the whole point was I was watching this going. Not only are they, you know, kind of taking the Bechdel test and you know dragging it through the mud, as it were. Um, they're using it kind of accurately in the sense that they were trying to develop a story that would pass the test and still be chauvinist and awful. Um, so at the same time, like I said, it, it gave me this opportunity to go, I'm, I find this hysterical. There's something wrong with me that I find this hysterical. But I still find it hysterical um, because you see, at least on some level, that the writers were playing with exactly these ideas, first about narration with the whole uh, never-ending train thing, uh, but also with other literary uh, critical subjects, including the Bechtel test in you know the, the field of feminism.
2: I think that's actually a cool example for, because this is the one episode that everybody always references. Of course. Um, And I mean, you could make the argument, and this is what I like a lot about literary studies is that one of the things that we are interested in is polyvalence. So, um, how many potential meanings can a text produce depending on what kind of position or we take or lens we look through? And with that with that episode, um, you could for instance, also make the argument that because of this incredible self-awareness of of this episode and the characters within the episode and the over the topness of the representation, this creates that exact satirical effect or ironic effect that leads to this, this imitation with a difference, um, as, as uh, Linda Hudson would, would phrase it, that um, makes us aware that this is wrong, that this is um, r slash not women's anatomy or something like that. (laughs) Um, And, and that, that I think that makes this, this, um, episodes like this or texts like this so interesting because yes, we can read out of this a very chauvinistic tendency, unawareness of, um, of um, or, or like uh, ignorance. Uh, towards uh, women's issues or, or uh, gender politics at, at the moment. But we can also argue with the same text something that is more benevolent and can say, okay, this is actually pointing out the ridiculousness of the fact that these characters... Like imagination is limited to coming up with, okay, vaginas that shoot out laser beams. Um, so I, th- that's what I like about literary and cultural studies so much is that it opens our eyes to the fact that the world is not black and white most of the time, but that it comes in different nuances, in different shades. And not all of these shades are different shades of gray. <laughs> ah. Uh, Thank you so much. Leon made made the (laughs) face that I had inside, like the cringe. Oh, my God, she made a Fifty Shades of Grey reference. Um, So I I think that this that this polyvalence that we can see within a lot of cultural production is what makes our field of study so interesting and so so important as well. I mean, we are not a highbrow fancy and I keep on saying this and I I will keep on saying this until the day I die, I guess. Um, We we are for everybody, really.
0: Mm. Well, we're um, not only highbrow and fancy.
2: Not not only, yeah. <laughs> also, but not only. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I um, I think this topic is this topic about um, no, I think it's very important to talk about what can you not even still enjoy after you started studying or after a couple of years in the anglistic, but also what can you enjoy even more, because a lot of people are scared that they can't enjoy things the way they used to, and I think this being scared is already a sign that maybe you enjoyed something that had a problem or that where well, there could a problem with it. Like if I watch two and a half men and then I don't want to study English because I think okay maybe my view on this story could change, on the series could change. Maybe I already know that there's something wrong inside the series that I then can't ignore anymore. Yeah. yeah. But I also think that there are series or movies or literature that you can enjoy even more thanks to your studies. Like Rick and Morty, but also um, in the linguistic, they give you the example of the movie Arrival, because it's a movie that deals with language and how language works and how you can teach Mm. someone language and how you can translate one language to another. And I think after you've completed those modules or a class about this topic, you see those scenes with a different eye and you can completely understand, say, this is what I know this. I know why they are doing this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and I think one additional layout that, at least, that I've noticed with myself to this is that um, I I start to actively seek out products that are different from what I would normally view. For instance, um, when I when I was like in the middle of my bachelor's, I I really realized that most of the texts that i was reading for myself for for pleasure um at, at home or most of the tv shows that i was watching were centered around mostly white male dudes um and m- white male cis dudes and i've tried
0: a genre that's easy to find yeah it,
2: very easy to find i mean it's, it's all <laughs> over the place and not exactly a niche kind of genre um and I, I realized like because like this study program opened my eyes towards um, um, a lot of social issues that are prevalent and represented and fostered in literature and other cultural products that I am now able to. And I started that in, in my mid bachelor's, late, late bachelor's to sort of broaden my horizon actively, instead of just uh, have media bombard me with stuff. But I now make an effort to look out for movies that show me different types of people, different representations. I talk about that, I I enjoy that, because I wasn't aware that, like, that's important to know these things, to, talk, to, to, to know representations of um, Black women, of, trans people, of people who are um, part of the LGBTQ plus community like me, but also different from me. And that's, that's so cool to just be aware of the fact that I can actively seek out representations and broaden my horizon like that, and no longer be su- subjected to like being a passive consumer in a, in a sense. And that's kind of empowerment I enjoy very, very much.
1: I know exactly what you mean. My bookshelf has become a lot more diverse since I started studying (laughs) Anglistic.
0: That speaks to both you and the program, I think. Um, And I mean, as long as we're still on the topic of bookshelves. um, Another thing that I thought about in, in the opposite way of Rick and Morty, like something that I think I enjoy even more. There are things that I do enjoy uh, less. Um, the Dune series by Frank Herbert, mm-hmm. which is a science fiction series of books, which goes on forever. He's, his son, Brian, even picked up the series at some point and um, tried to do prequels and things like that. Um, but just going back and rereading those first couple of books, um, the first three, um, which which are definitely, I don't know, I, I would say more canon. Um, it's so obvious to see you know how how male-centric they are Mm. how orientalist they are um how how they they take these foreign cultures at least foreign to the protagonists in the story and and turn them around and it's modeled on a world that's much like ours where all of these uh people with power are coming from places like europe even though it's somewhere in the galaxy somewhere Mm. and going to some place that has natural resources, in this case, uh, the spice. Although you could call this whatever you want. It's very much modeled on oil um, <laughs> and anything that makes travel much easier, as the entire series is based on exactly getting this spice for space travel. And and all of these things. And so I, I go back and I read these things. And I, I think exactly what you were telling me, uh, Jessica, or telling us. Um, and that is, what, what was it about this? Um, particular series that spoke to me what is it that made me enjoy this Mm. so much and it's always exploring those questions that I think makes it so interesting and gives you more an insight not only to the culture where it came from because I think when Frank Herbert was writing these in the 1960s this is not exactly you know orientalism wasn't exactly as big a thing yeah (laughs) Um, let's just put it that way um and and second of all you know feminism was a thing and yet he was still writing in a very I don't know, a a genre that was very much a sausage party. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, And without much regard for anything else, um, but just trying to tell this story as he wanted to. And um, yeah, I think that's just, so that's part of it. But what does it tell me about me? You know, I also think that, especially being a cis uh, white man, um, it's not like I didn't see myself in the characters mm. uh, that that he wrote, uh, him being also a cis white man. Um, so I also try to give myself that, that that lenience to a certain degree. It's like, well, you know, he is writing a representation that speaks to me. Yeah. It's just that it shouldn't only be those representations out there. Um, it's, it's not like it's wrong to enjoy this particular, exactly. uh, you know, series of books or whatever. Um, but uh, to see them as problematic and to look at them critically, I think, is something that we can all do. And I don't think we necessarily have to, you know, <laughs> indulge in, in self-hatred or self-doubt as a result Absolutely of loving not. these things.
2: Absolutely not. And I think that's that's part of, like, what what a lot of people get wrong about, like, literary criticisms a lot, like uh, post-colonial criticism, feminist criticism. It's not about... We don't want white men, white cis men to appear in novels anymore. That's not the case Um, of everybody wants to see themselves represented um, because fiction is a way for us to test out alternative versions of ourselves and to test hypotheses and ways of action without really suffering the consequences of, of it. It's super important for us to have characters and storylines in which we can see ourselves reflected. And I would, nobody wants to, to, to take away that from, from anybody. Rather, these critical approaches seek to show how certain texts misrepresent or problematically represent um, people who...
0: Oversimplify.
2: Oversimplify <laughs> other... Um, who who have been disenfranchised um, throughout history. And the the um, activism behind that is to give more representational time and space to these formerly disenfranchised groups. And I find that not I find that so fundamentally important. I can't really like I I, I often struggle with, Sort of facing people, particularly people who are not in my field of study, or who, who have not been to university at all, who sort of fall victim to this Facebook rhetoric of, uh, yeah, feminists have gone too far, and um, and now every every James Bond needs to be a black woman, and all of this kind of weird stuff. And then, then I'm. Re- That's a
0: James Bond I would totally love to see. It, that.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. me too. Um, and then I'm reminded of, um, I, I forgot who it was exactly, but it was one of the chief executives, I think, of Wizards of the Coast, um, the people who produce Magic the Gathering and uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and a fantastic role playing game series. And uh, what he said to what, uh, on a comment, I think it was on, on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Twitter or Instagram or something like that. Um, One of them said, like, do you really have to print all of these Magic the Gathering cards with black women and all of that? Like something along those lines. And this executive answered, I totally see that why you are upset. But um, you, you come from a position as a young white man who sees himself being represented all the time. Now, imagine you come from a group where there is little to no representation of who you are and... What you you're trying to figure out who you are and what you would like to be, but you don't find any representation of anybody who's similar to you, um, and we just want to afford everybody the chance to identify with the games that we put out and the cards that we print for Magic the Gathering. And that's why I appreciate Magic the Gathering, for instance, so much as a game, because these cards, the the characters on these cards and the stories behind these characters and on these cards are so, so diverse. They don't get everything right, of course, nobody can. But just making an effort, a conscious effort to to include more people in terms of representation to include trans people non-binary people bipoc um uh, people to like everybody really and to give everybody a chance to see themselves in characters and to empathize with characters i think is so fundamentally important um yeah full stop rant over
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i think that's very important i just think that a lot of people are scared because previously this wasn't the case and not everyone was included and now, n- not being forced to, but having to include everyone or sh- should be being in the position where you should include everyone um, scares people that things could change. And yeah. they should change because some things weren't fine in the way they were. But people are scared of losing what they had before because humans are afraid of change. An example would be Doctor Who where you oh, have yes. <laughs> 20 or 30 or 40 white male One after another, and then at some point you don't have, like, a a, a black LGBTQ woman, but you have a white blonde woman, and the fans lose their shit. Yeah. Even though this has been a joke for years, that every time he changes, he's scared of either being ginger or scared of being a woman. Then at some point he's a woman, then, like, yeah, we made the joke a reality. And they're like, no, how could you? How dare you? It was supposed to be a joke. Like what
2: <laughs> yeah because an, an immortal time traveling alien can't be a woman that's uh, yeah um no i mean the, the same with james bond uh, or, or other representations or like recently we had this uh, like i'm not for disney life remakes but okay so if we have to have ariel why shouldn't she be black? Like, what's the, what's the problem? Like, really? Seriously? Um, Are we actually really talking about this? Um, There's, yeah, I I, I get that. People are scared of change. But so far, change has led to a lot of good stuff, I guess. Um, And I think, like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You have to look at more black people, What's your problem? <laughs> like, what is your problem, really? Uh, or you have to engage with the fact that women are people. D- insane, I know. Um, like, it seems to be a, a life-threatening <laughs> revelation for some people um, that everybody else who is not a white cis man is also a person. Um, and yeah, I mean. We understand that. we. That I think as a society, as a whole, we have a lot, to, a lot of work to do. And part of the work we do here in this department, I think. Um. I think
1: this is we try what we do in this department. Look at mm. text, whatever this text may be, in what form this text may occur to us or show itself in front of us and analyze it and see what is behind it. What does it mean? What could it mean? How do I interpret it? How could others interpret it? And this is basically all that we do and um and we had the topic of like why it's cis men and how things change and if we can if uh, how we see how we see things changes with um going further in the studies i recently wrote a paper with you about supernatural mm-hmm. one of my <clears throat> favorite series of all time yeah. which is white male white male white male white male white male yep. and i was able to to actually watch this series again and think yeah this is great because even though it's a lot of white men's They address certain problems in the series, like toxic masculinity. And this is something that they, it's a very important topic throughout the series that one of the characters struggles a lot with. And this is something that I couldn't see before because I didn't know a lot about this topic. Mm. And I was so happy that I could rewatch this and see, this is great. I now understand why this character does this, why he thinks like this, why he behaves like this. And I was so happy.
2: Yeah, I I, I I totally get that. I mean, one one other thing that such analysis I think can do for us is th- this realization that um, our own perception of reality and our own interpretation of reality is not necessarily the way other people live reality. Um, the way that, like, like my world as a white cis woman is different from the world of, for instance, a white trans woman or a black cis man. And I can, of course, we can attach other identity uh, markers like class, for instance, to that as well, or, or regionality or something like that. Um, and the real, like, it, it sounds like f- for me now, this sounds so almost mundane uh, to, 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 to say it like that, but I think for me, this was quite a pivotal moment when I realized that, because it's so easy to think, particularly as a very, very young person, that the way I'm feeling is either totally unique or the experience that everybody else is making. Like, it's either of the two. And then learning that, no, there are so many nuances in between. And I I think I have figured stuff out, but I don't have everything figured out. And nobody does. And we actually need to talk to other people in order to figure out how much of the worldview we we share and where our experiences differ. And just this, this... illuminating experience that, that I've made here in this, when I was study, studying here as a student, to realize I have experiences, but the next white woman next to me may have different experiences, and the black woman next to her has yet other experiences from that have to do with race, ethnicity, uh, gender, sexuality, um, and so on and so forth, class that was so fundamentally important in the way that I hope to be able to communicate with other people um, and the, the ways in which I hope to be able to ask good questions um, as, as an academic and just as a person. Uh, so I, I think that... This is one of the things that the humanities really do best to to help people figure out ways in which to approach the world with a less narrow mindset and to to account for the diversity of experiences. And that's why representations are important, full stop. Um, if anybody ever says again that literary studies is not a good academic field of study, tell them exactly that, um, because representations matter. It's not just, of course, researching uh, for for something like a, a cure to cancer is extremely important, and if you want to be a medical professional, go for it. But that doesn't mean that literary studies is not important. Um, and I've been told that by, by people uh, I used to study biology with, that I would I would now go on to lesser things. Um, and uh, I, I can now say with full confidence that I wholeheartedly disagree. <laughs>
0: i can only uh 100% second that motion um i i have family um I have a brother, <laughs> you a like brother in else. particular I thought
2: you, you were born out of your own will brian i thought you gave birth to yourself at one point I'm... i
0: think we all do that in a certain oh, metaphor. oh. um <laughs> but at the same time um the the family that i come from no uh my brother is in uh let's say the the computer sciences and someone who likes data and uh very very i don't know um empirical uh things and anything qualitative in the nature that that i do it in my my studies in my research um in my teaching to him seems mm, relativistic or um unimportant in those ways so i mean these are despite having uh gone through the bachelor's degree the master's degree uh closing in on my phd despite all of these things i can have a conversation with him and he will play devil's advocate with literally anything that i say (laughs) simply because uh he thinks that the um well he he thinks he can (laughs) Uh, (laughs) the the fun part is when i catch him out on it um but the idea being that because it's not um, you know, binary zeros and ones on a page, um, that it is meaningless, uh, essentially. That there's no quantifiable data to be had there. In fact, if we want to go into quantifiable data, then we're going to go into places like biology uh, and then prove, for example, the existence of something, let's call it race. Um, and we can do that with genetics he would hold um, and um, perhaps regionality etc cetera, etc cetera, um, instead of let's say engage with whatever it is that we're talking about um, and this is a conversation jessica we were just having the other day um, when we were talking about um, dealing with people who have perspectives other than ours and people are 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 free to have whatever perspective they choose to have in the end is my feeling as long as they're not hurting anybody else um and a lot of people who have differing opinions would like to challenge those out there and i think sometimes with good reason that is to say they're trying to broaden their horizons they're trying to um, understand the position that other people are coming from um and then there are ways of challenging which uh to pardon my french is just a big fuck you Mm. to anything that doesn't align with their own worldview which is something that i try to avoid i realize that i have a very specific worldview um which i might characterize as open and tolerant and accepting and um, a lot of things that people don't necessarily respect for their face value that is to say if it doesn't generate a profit if it doesn't further science if it doesn't do this that or the other thing then it can be seen as valueless in that value system um but what i try not to do is then just completely disregard those voices so particular, and i have a great sounding board uh in my family who who helps me hone those skills <laughs> um but essentially saying okay if, if what you're saying is uh yes let's say for example race is something that exists rather than the social construct i personally would hold it to be um, why don't we engage in the literature that i'm talking? from the definitions that I am using uh, that you would like to disagree with, you know, let's let's look at what that literature has to say first before we just engage in, you know, meaningless banter, uh, this kind of back and forth, which goes nowhere based on we don't even understand the same concept mm. to be the same thing. Um, so we need to at least know the base knowledge of where we're coming from um before we start engaging in you know this is correct or not correct based on your personal assessment wherever that may come from and i'm happy to read the literature as to where that comes from um and so i think one of the things especially in the last i want to say uh in the last presidency uh, so <laughs> some, <laughs> some, something that came up perhaps more often in the trump era um would be a challenge to exactly these kinds of critical traditions that that we often teach and espouse. So if we're talking about post-colonial theory, if we're talking about feminist theory, if we're talking about queer theory, um, if we're talking about these things that have led to, let's say, at least more representation, uh, more tolerance. Uh, it, it, at least that's my hope. You know, this one of the reasons I do the job in the hope that the world becomes a more tolerant, um, a more accepting, a more welcoming place of people of any kind um and so it's 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 you know this is part of the job i think that that also we need to at least to a certain degree address so how do we handle differing opinions how do we handle um differences of opinion how do we handle you know people who are for whatever reason perhaps because they're cis males um and white and are threatened for example by the things that they hear in these theories like the white guy these days is always the boo man or um all men are pigs and you know we can't deny that full stop um you know the, and i think the, the, there's some pushback let's put it that way yeah. so we've made steps in one direction and i think probably the right direction i don't want to make it a, a question of right or wrong it's just right for me um but the pushback is there and i think even in our in our classrooms at times um and so my my question that goes along with this whole rant is you know what do you think is is the right way to to handle these situations or what do you do in these situations
2: Uh, well i i've been in these situations only a few times and um my colleagues have have told me that um like i when i get in conflict um and it doesn't happen very very often it's usually young men um, with whom I get into into conflicts and some of that has to do with um, at least my colleagues think so and I I think I agree um, that it has to do with the fact that I'm still relatively young <laughs> and not young young I'm not like fresh but I'm I'm. but fair enough um, and um, I'm I'm a woman so um, young men often in this this formative period of of their lives um, feel like when I this weird loud um, woman come in and say hi I'm a neo-marxist critic and a feminist let's work together that this actually like doesn't go down very well Um, and (laughs) i i try to like i try to be a bit more like you brian in this approach that like we as you said we talked about this a few days ago um to see what is salvageable in this because like first and foremost i as a teacher am in a relationship with this person as my student um and i can approach this from the perspective okay i'm i'm a teacher i have I don't have all the wisdom in the world, of course, but I have a bit more experience in my research field and I'm now faced with somebody who has less experience in this research field and who maybe for the first time now encounters um, contexts in which his, sometimes her worldview is is challenged um, to, to a large degree. And as Leon pointed out, this can be quite scary. So to formerly I would have been like very very defensive and I try not to do that anymore because I don't think it serves me well nor does it serve the point that I'm trying to make but um, I often then invite people to um, I I ask questions like instead of responding to what they want me to do rather to ask okay where are you coming from why do you think that What are the studies that you're basing your worldview on? Um, Who are the people that you're referencing? And as soon as somebody says Jordan Peterson, they've basically debunked themselves. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) the, The point being that when I figure out, like when I ask them, like honestly, they oftentimes can't tell me. And I think this is the softest possible way in which I can point them towards the fact that they have unfunded opinions and that they are not coming from a place of knowledge, but from a place of ignorance. And, like, I had very, very hard, (laughs) and I made a very, like, tough experience once when somebody really showed me the hard way, look, you're actually quite ignorant at this point, and I went like, shit. And that doesn't go down well, because we don't like to view ourselves as somebody who doesn't know things. We want to be knowledgeable and like charming and interesting and all of these things. And most of the times we're not. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking for myself. Um, but I, I think that if, if I want to make people aware of the fact that they need to do a bit more like reading, need to be a bit more open to the things that we are doing, it's I'd, I'd rather do it a bit more more softly and let them know, look, why don't you give this a read? And I invite them to my office hours. I have this academic jam session. where if people want to, they can make an appointment for my office hour and then just bring a topic that they would like to discuss. Leon has done this before and other students have done this. And we just have an an academic chat where where people like either ask me for reading um, uh, recommendations or they ask me questions. And most of the time I say, I don't know, let's try and figure this out together. (laughs) So um, and, and that way we can sort of build up a conversation. And the best like the best experience I've had with somebody um, in my class. Um, Alex, if you're listening, hi. I hope you don't mind sharing. Um, He was like a fantastic student in my GAP class a few semesters back. He wrote a fantastic essay, but everything was dope. And um, then we had a conversation during my office hour and I I don't know how we got there Um, and he said, I'm not a feminist. I'm definitely not a feminist. I I think this, this term doesn't work. And uh, if anything, I would say I'm a humanist and we've heard this argument before. I've made this argument back when I was in my first and second semester. Like, I'm not a feminist I'm not a feminist. I'm not a feminist. And then I, I looked at him and he was very, very strong. I said, OK, you you do you. You I, I don't th- I think you're a feminist. I told him um, and um, just just study, just do your thing. Um and I told him, I think you're gonna get there in your own time and he was like nah, 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 nah. Um <laughs> and he left. It was a lovely conversation. Um and then a few semesters after that, when Black Lives Matter first started, um he came back to my office hour and we had to talk about a paper that he wrote and then he told me, um, by the way, I get it now. I'm a feminist. And I got goosebumps when he said this. And I was like, how how did you get there? And then he sat down again and we had another half hour conversation. And he told me about how he understood that all lives matter is bullshit (laughs) um, because that's not what Black Lives Matter is about. It's about Black Lives Matter as well. And they haven't mattered to the same extent that white lives have mattered so far. And this is what we are calling for. And then he said, This is actually like, this is very similar to feminism. Feminism is not named feminism because like women are the best, but because (laughs) it, it can't be named humanism because this is about putting women on equal footing because they haven't had equal footing for millennia. And he was like, I needed that I, I needed that to happen and I needed to read stuff by myself and it wouldn't have helped if you had told me you're a bad person for not calling yourself a feminist. And that sort of, like, because I saw myself reflected in in this, I didn't start, I wasn't born a feminist, I was born an ignorant baby, (laughs) and, you know, you grow with the reading that you do, and with the people that you talk to, and, you know, we are all still growing, we are still all ongoing, as as, even as published academics and professor, doctor, 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 doctor something, we are all still, you know, learning, and to see him make that step in his own time, and and then f- with full confidence say, "Look, I'm I'm a feminist, and I'm I'm going to work f- towards more equality now." That was so great, and um, just just thinking about it and how how proud he was, and how 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 rhetorically. Beautifully, he was able to to voice sort of his opinions, and he's. I'm just in awe uh, of of him and people like him in general. Um So um that so much for for salvageable situations. Just because I don't agree with somebody at one point doesn't mean that we can't sort of find ways to work with one another. And when I see, okay, this person was at a is now in a place where I used to be, like five or six years ago. I need to afford them the space and the time to do so. What I don't put up with in my classes, and I've said this in, especially in social and cultural studies a few times, is that if anybody makes my students unsafe, by rhetoric racist rhetoric or something like that I will use the the power that I have in this class and remove people I cannot bar people from getting a student license in my class but you can get a student license without being in class and making anybody uncomfortable <laughs> uh, no problem. Um, I, I think I have enough I, I think I have enough uh, like uh, academic integrity to be able to work with somebody even if we don't agree um, on things. Um and I I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be like wielding the administrative hammer and bar people from my classes when there is no alternative for them. Um, but I will, should it ever happen, remove people from my class if they are um, spouting any kind of rhetoric or putting anybody in, in harm's way um, rhetorically or, or otherwise. Um, so far, I had no crass incidents in, in my class. Uh, i hope this never happens yeah, luckily uh yeah um but i've heard from others that that they had um like um or that, that they've made experiences in class with students who are cl- quite clearly um dangerous or um mm. practicing or so, sort of uh, spreading ideas that are hateful and um are t- even if they claim otherwise, not funded and uh, not, not founded in any kind of research um, or mm. any kind of logic or any kind of like th- anything that they pride themselves in. Um, and I have no problem excluding these people from the academic discourse community in my classroom um, until they they learn to listen fast.
1: <laughs> I think all three of us had talks in this direction. I think the biggest problem is that when you talk to someone that studies biology or chemistry or mathematics, you, as someone that doesn't study this topic, wouldn't say that... I, I am trying to make a point, so don't jump on <laughs> no, go that ahead. maybe doesn't <laughs> make sense now. Um, you wouldn't say that your opinions matters as much as this person's because this person has a lot more knowledge in this area. I'm not saying that because I study Anglistic or because I study feminism or something else, my my opinion matters more. I am saying that I've possibly read more texts, seen more studies and seen more things that my opinion is based on more academic knowledge or knowledge that I deem academic. The The problem is that Social culture studies is social culture studies, not um, like mathematics or biology, science. And people think that if it's not science or a certain type of science, opinions are, you can have an opinion on everything. Well, you, you can't have an opinion on biology, but you can have an opinion on everything from social culture studies. So you can, it doesn't matter if it's feminism, or whatever people come and say, okay, this is my opinion. It's like, okay, this is my opinion. Do you want to talk about this? And like. No, this is my opinion. I'm fine like this. This is okay. But the problem is that I feel that because I know what I know, I want to talk about to see if I can, if we can find a common ground, but the other person values their opinion it's completely the same level as mine and i it's just a weird feeling
2: i i, I get that um like most of my friends uh, don't come from british and american studies or university even um a, same. a, a lot same. of my friends are in fact from from the medical professions they they are nurses and and the like um like fantastic people who do like right now the, the most amazing job um and th- what i noticed is that um nobody would <laughs> come to me and ask, hey, can you look at this weird spot on my shoulder and tell me whether this is dangerous or not?
0: <laughs> and nobody would
2: come to me with that because everybody knows this is not within my area of expertise. But you ask... The medical professionals in your friend group who then tell you, of course, that you should see your general practitioner for that or a dermatologist. Um, But like you with medical questions, you go to your friends who have expertise in medicine with questions pertaining to carpentry. You go to the person in your friend group who does like. Carpentry. Um, if you um, if you uh, you know you want to know what why your dog is having the zoomies constantly, you ask a professional dog trainer. Um, if you know know somebody, so you will always ask somebody who you know has qualifications and who is trained in a certain field. Now, the the issue with literary studies and social and culture studies, by extension, is that. Um, analysis and interpretation is something that all of us do all the time. Um, Humans are meaning-making machines. Um, We cannot operate if we are not analyzing and interpreting. Now, that I think to some extent leads to the assumption that, um, first of all, analysis and interpretation is always personal. There is no no data that can be derived from that, which is untrue. But secondly, that everybody can do it. And if everybody can do it, then everybody can have an opinion and everybody's opinion is equally valid. The problem with that is that people like us, like people in medicine or carpenters or dog trainers, are trained in one specific thing. I can't train your dog. I can't treat your skin disease. Um, I can't build anything for shit. Uh, But... (laughs) We have been trained, I have been trained, in analysis and interpretation. I have an academic toolkit that is structured um, and with which I can build argumentations that are watertight, more or less, um, and um, that makes my interpretations, my view on things, different from the views of my medical professional friends, because that's not in their area of expertise. That's my area of expertise. That's our area of expertise. And I think people just have a hard time understanding that analysis and interpretation can be something that that can be done and should be done in a structured way, in a peer-reviewed way, in something that happens in an academic community where ideas are tested and discarded when they don't work um, and in which like there is constant there are constant paradigm shifts once new studies find something where interdisciplinary work, is super important. I mean, we we work a lot with other disciplines, um, with psychology, with sociology, with history, with politics, and so on and so forth, in order to make sense of cultural products. So we're not at all like this isolated, weird field of study where everybody just does what they feel like. Um, and I think helping people to recognize this expertise is super difficult. Um, and the last point that I would like to make here is that um, I think one of the things that a lot of particularly young people who've come in co- into contact with literary studies and like the criti- criticisms that are attached to feminist criticism, post colonial criticism via Facebook, they, they get like very extreme, very weird, very distorted sometimes ideas of what it means to be a literary scholar using these criticisms. And people who study biology or other hard sciences, for instance, may feel like, okay, yeah, but there's no data, there's no data, data. Well, my, my um, response to that would be, well, in your field of study, there is no emotion. Um, wh- Where in the zeros and ones is passion, is love, is hatred. And but the point is that You cannot simply disregard a whole slew of human experiences because they cannot be grasped with your field of study and with the toolkit that your field of study provides you with. You're good at analyzing data, at gathering data and analyzing data. I am good at analyzing and interpreting phenomena both of which is cool, and absolutely fantastic, and absolutely necessary. It's not either, you know, one or the other. It's both at the same time. Inform like like uh, computer sciences can't look at human emotions and the human condition the way that literary studies can. But I can't make it so that, for instance, the people, what the, the people in SciTech are doing, I can't write something that produces a machine, a robot, to assist somebody to move around in an ap- apartment and find things, like the SciTech people do amazing shit with robots. Um, I can't do that. That's no problem. That's, both things have a reason. For, for their existence, because both of which help us navigate our everyday lives and both things tell us something about like what it is to be human and they can enhance the human, they can enhance human experience and lives and make it better for everybody. And I think that is one of the fundamental things that all of us need to sort of remind ourselves of time and time again, um, that, that all of the different schools of thought have their place. Um, and need to be there for different purposes. So that is, I think, what what I would tell your brother Brian when when he goes on, but you don't have any data. Um. <laughs>
0: well you know it's not something i don't spend just a very little bit of time thinking about um i can recommend i highly recommend a book by kathy o'neill called weapons of math destruction (laughs) m-a-t-h weapons of math destruction Um, because she talks about um, her own work as a, a computer scientist and talks about how she has developed algorithms that do specific things um, and also looks at how other people have developed algorithms using very hard empirical data to make decisions and decisions that affect other people's lives. Uh, we're talking about things in court or with police response or things of this nature. And yet, um, the the fallacy of the thought that just because something is computer mm, or interpreted by computers mm. um, and based on certain data, um that this is free of any kind of human error in the direction let's say of racism or prejudicial um prejudicial uh, decision making because all of the algorithms are developed based on questions and answers made by actual human beings and these human beings can and do in the examples that she names in her book very often use data that is biased in some way shape or form just based on how that data is collected or where or why it is collected um and so to say you know just because uh, it's done by computers means it's non-prejudicial isn't and of itself also a fallacy yeah. because this data comes from somewhere this data is is manipulated and and I, I mean manipulated not in the sense that you know people are changing facts but in that it is being um harvested based on decisions that people yeah. have made and these people do not always necessarily work from a place that is absent of prejudices or something like yeah. that
2: Ab- absolutely and i mean one of the things that um f- or one of the, the the core ideas in in feminist scholarship is of course that this whole dichotomy of like logic versus emotion is is a patriarchal dichotomy in and of itself, um, and that this this strong value that we place over this um, this myth of objectivity and and total objectivity and uh, total logic, devoid of all emotion, is in itself uh, problematic and and dangerous even. And a lot of black feminist scholars, for instance, um, take up this and really reintroduce the whole idea of um, um, personal experience and anecdotal evidence as something that should be taken into account particularly when talking about the social realities of of, of people, of real people um, lived lives as it were um, and, and I really really like this, There's this reintroduction of the personal into the academic not as something that weakens argumentation but rather as something that can help us understand social conditions and um, mm. So this whole Nimbus of objectivity and and uh, total like like absolute logic in in everything is is in itself a a human construct as it were. But this goes very very deep into post-structuralist philosophy, I feel.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I, we don't need to scare people away before yeah, they get. Yeah, sorry, here, sorry. Our we are
2: really cool. I promise don't <laughs> leave. Um.
1: <laughs> so I hate to be the party pooper, but we're on a tight schedule exactly uh, today. So Are there any clothing words you want to say? And if not, Jessica, do you want to say some nice things to students that maybe experience you in one or two semesters to say hi I don't buy it or something.
2: <laughs> and guys come and say hi and tell me that you don't buy it. And then let's have coffee together and talk over it. Um, because I, as you may have noticed over the, ti- over the time of this podcast, I love talking, um, <laughs> but I, more than talking, I like listening to you guys. So come to my classes and engage in awesome conversations. And um I think one of the things that I appreciate most about teaching is not that I get to talk to you and to teach you something, but that I get to learn something from you. And um, I I always grow with each and every session and each and every semester. So come and teach me something.
0: well said absolutely
2: (laughs) thank you so much for having me today guys you you are absolutely amazing i feel so honored and um i can't wait to to listen to future episodes of this podcast (laughs) same Uh,
0: you you honor (laughs) us with your presence um and so thank you very much i guess uh leon unless you have something you want to add here
1: no i think that's it
0: excellent so i would say job well done everybody since nobody else is in the room with you you can always go ahead and Pat yourselves on the back for taking the time out and uh, hanging out. We appreciate you. Leon and I totally appreciate you, Jessica, for having been here today. um, And appreciate all of the fine words that you have uh, let go here and uh, honored us with. Um, Otherwise, yeah. Leon, I don't think we have any special guests to announce for the next time around, do we? No, this was our first special guest that we announced. Absolutely. So stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Feel honored. Um, stay tuned for even more <laughs> special guests in the future as uh, we come back and give you more episodes of Angliston Assemble. This episode of Angliston Assemble was privately produced as a joint nonprofit informational project of students and staff of Bielefeld University. All views and opinions expressed on the show in no way reflect the official views of the university and are solely the perspectives of our hosts and guests. Information provided is true to the best of our knowledge at the time of production, but is naturally subject to change, as some details are time-sensitive. Anglist and Assemble was produced and edited by Brian Rosema and Leon Dallashow for the private use of our quality audience. Musical accompaniment was fished out of the FMA Free Music Archives and includes the musical stylings of the Makai Beats. To listen to and support these artists, you can go to freemusicarchive.org and check out their fine tracks and many others. And finally, we'd like to thank our special guest today, the judicious Jessica Koch.